Well, good morning. There must be some military folks in here. You can always tell when there are, there are because they respond to the salutation. <laughs> so, um, my appreciation to the University of Virginia uh, for the opportunity to be here this morning. Um, uh, let me just uh, issue the following disclaimer, especially here at uh, the law school. I am not a lawyer. I am, don't play one on TV ever. Um, and uh, my comments today are a reflection of political analysis, not legal analysis. Um, so uh, my comments today are basically going to try and provide some context uh, about how China views the law in the context of international security. Before we get to that, however, there are certain fundamental uh, starting points that I'd like to lay out. Uh, first off is what is China's view of security writ large. And here we have the benefit of uh, the Chinese telling us what their idea of their core interests are. And first and foremost, it is maintaining the fundamental system and state security of the People's Republic of China, which translates to making sure that the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, remains in power. Um, Preserving party legitimacy and the party's control is the first priority. The second is preserving Chinese territorial integrity and sovereignty, um, making sure that Chinese territory is inviolate. And when we talk about Chinese territory, we include not only uh, mainland China, Hainan, uh, you know, Beijing, etc., but we are talking about Tibet, we are talking about Xinjiang, we are talking about Taiwan, and increasingly we are talking about the South China Sea and the so-called nine-dash line. And finally, we have the need to maintain the development of China's society and economy. This is currently, in the Chinese description, there's still the period of strategic opportunity, meaning that on the one hand, the Chinese assessment is that we do not confront the likelihood of a major war in the near future, and therefore this is a great and important time for China to move its economy forward, to develop its economy, to develop the level of science and technology, et cetera, throughout their system. Um, all that being said, however, those core interests nonetheless confront threats because other states are not necessarily friendly. And the U.S. in particular is often portrayed as striving to contain China, uh, limit China's power and influence, and undermine CCP rule. In the last Chinese defense white paper uh, issued in 2015, um, and we believe these white papers are probably the ultimate in authoritativeness, uh, they are issued by the Chinese bureaucracy having been hammered out through a multi-agency process, arguably comparable to that of uh, any other nation's multi-agency uh, process. The Chinese enunciate that one of the threats they face is the prospect of a quote-unquote color revolution in China, fomented from the outside. Uh, so that's how the Chinese themselves talk about their perspectives on international security. In addition, we should recognize that there are certain um, factors that make China very different. The first is that it is the first continental power to become truly dependent upon the world's oceans. <laughs> when we think about other continental and maritime power divides. Continental powers, Napoleonic France, Imperial Germany, Nazi Germany, uh, the Soviet Union. 
these were countries for whom the world's oceans did not really matter to them. The oceans provided access to them. They had to be able to cut them, the battles of the Atlantic in World War I and World War II. But they themselves depended very little on the world's oceans. By contrast, the United States, Great Britain, Japan are classical maritime powers. If they are going to trade, if they are going to operate, they need the world's oceans. China today, although it is a continental power, although most of its capabilities reside on land, now depends upon the seas to power its economy. It is a net importer of hydrocarbons. It is, in fact, the world's largest importer of hydrocarbons. People forget it is, the, it is a net importer of food. China depends upon imports from Canada, the United States, Australia, and Brazil and Argentina for wheat and even for rice. So that means that China depends upon the oceans one, to keep its people alive and system-fueled, but two, of course, it depends upon the oceans to export T-shirts, washing machines, and computers abroad. So we have a country that needs access to the seas. Um, the Chinese economic center of gravity is now on the coast, from Tianjin to Shenzhen. This is, again, very different. In the past, China's economic centers of gravity were in Manchuria or in inland China. Um, so, again, this places a Im high importance upon the oceans as a security issue as well as an economic issue. China's view of the nature of the international system has also changed. And this is partly a function of their view that the fundamental nature of economics and society has changed. Basically, the rise of ICT, information communications technology, has meant that the world, in the Chinese view, has shifted from the industrial age to the information age. In the industrial age, power was measured in terms of how many millions of tons of iron ore did you smelt, and how many terawatts of electricity did you generate. And while those still matter, in the information age, what matters is the ability to gather, to analyze, to exploit information more rapidly and more accurately than other countries. Information is now the currency of power. Alongside the shift in the nature of international power then has come a shift in the nature of military power. The industrial age was marked by mechanized warfare. The blitzkrieg coupled with mass production of tanks, of ships, of aircraft. In the information age we have what the Chinese term informationized local wars. Local meaning that it is not global and not thermonuclear, <clears throat> but it is still strategic and decisive. Informationized meaning that as with industry, as with economy, that basically the currency of military power is more and more a function of access to information. And what we see when we delve a little further down into how the Chinese write about and analyze current and future warfare, we see a couple of key points. One is that future wars will be dominated by joint operations, that the era of just land warfare, or just air warfare, or just maritime warfare has ended, that future wars will by definition include land, sea, air, outer space, and cyber-slash-electromagnetic space operations, all gathered together, 
all mutually playing off each other, mutually complementary, mutually linked. But to conduct joint operations, you need shared situational awareness. Your air and sea forces, your land and space forces, need to know what each other sees, needs to be able to react to inputs from other services, needs to be able to share their situation and communicate with each other, all of which is about information. And so the PLA writes about the importance, People's Liberation Army, writes about the importance of information dominance in the context of informationized local wars. So what does that have to do with legal warfare? The Chinese, I would suggest, view information very holistically. Um, the resume that, that, uh, that you folks heard highlights that one of the things I focus on is China's space program. It also seems to suggest I have trouble holding down a job. Um, when you look at how the Chinese view space, they do not simply talk about what's in orbit. Space to them is what is in orbit, terrestrial facilities, launch facilities, mission control facilities, and the data links that tie it all together. And the same applies more broadly to information. Information is not just about economic information or military information. It is not just about tactical information or strategic information. It's about information writ large. So at the strategic level, information is part of the overall toolkit that shapes and molds the context for an international competition. And if there is a conflict, it sets, again, that framework, that broad context within which a conflict occurs. So we should be thinking about information warfare, informationized warfare, sorry, in the context for the Chinese as such things as political warfare. You've probably heard that term before, political warfare, hybrid warfare, what the Soviets were doing uh, during the Cold War, what the Russians have been doing with regards to Crimea and in our electoral system, etc. For the Chinese, political warfare is the hardest form of soft power. It is how you apply all of the various tools to shape and mold perceptions. And the Chinese note that, po that political warfare includes what they term the three warfares, san zan, legal warfare, public opinion warfare, and psychological warfare. So political warfare in this context also is a warfare. What do we mean by that? There is a plan. There is a strategic overarching plan. It is not just individual items. There is an underlying set of goals there is an application of resources. There is a strategic objective underlying the various operations that we see and that we see reported upon. Political warfare is aimed at three audiences. The first and foremost is the domestic Chinese audience. We sometimes forget that every country, one is ruled by politicians, whether you're wearing general shoulder boards or a suit, it is run by politicians. And politicians inevitably need to look to their domestic base, not necessarily for legitimacy, but at least to know whether or not they will still be in power tomorrow morning. 
So influencing the Chinese domestic audience is a priority. Second is whoever the main adversary is, both their population and their leadership. And finally, third parties, neutrals, allies, other side's allies, etc., um, their population and their leadership. So the three warfares then can be thought of as applying information in different ways against those three audiences. Legal warfare, as the Chinese write, this is employing the law to support one's own side while criticizing the other. Or as one PLA textbook put it, the purpose of legal warfare is to say, what I do is legal, what you do is illegal, and if I have to do something illegal, it's because you put me in that position. It is essential to recognize a couple of elements here. One is that China is not a rule of law society. Sitting here in this room on the, a campus designed by Thomas Jefferson, a hallmark of the Enlightenment, one of the things that is essential to the Western view of the law is that we are a rule of law society. We may not always implement it. But the ideal is that we are all equal before the law, and the law exists as a neutral arbiter. For China, through 5,000 years of history, there never arose a legal doctrine of the rule of law. Instead, theirs is a society of rule by law. The law has existed as an instrument to support to justify the leadership and its policies. And that's a fundamentally different view, and that translates to the issue of legal warfare. Um, I'm delighted General Dunlap was here. Um, I've had the opportunity to lecture for his classes and to talk to him. And one of the things that is always interesting is how, in particularly the American context, the function of the legal court often is to keep your commander out of trouble. We want to bomb this target. Yes, sir, let me go through the law. Let me make sure that, you know, what the rules are, and maybe you might not want to do that. And the perhaps infamous case was Mullah Omar. There was some question about whether or not you could hit his convoy. The JAG provided an opinion, and the commander decided, I'm really not sure I want to do that since there is some question. I would suggest that the Chinese view is very different, that their view is, uh, for a legal officer is instead, I intend to do something, you need to help me justify what we are talking about. And the Chinese themselves note that the issue is not legal basis or justification. It is using the law to support the achievement of political ends, such as by portraying the other side's actions as illegal, and supporting public opinion and psychological warfare, the other two warfares of the three warfares. And so for the Chinese, legal warfare includes not only the role of the lawyer in providing legal assessments, but also the exploitation of international law, national law, regulatory uh, law and regulations, and law enforcement agencies. So for example, why does China in the South China Sea use the Chinese Coast Guard rather than the PLA Navy to underscore its claims. 
It is a legal agency. It is a civilian entity. It is not the military. It is White Hulls. Part of this is for the political message of we are not escalating a crisis. You, the United States, send the Navy. We send Coast Guard vessels. The fact that they're 10,000 tons and displace them of a Baltimore-class World War II cruiser is often left unstated. But the other aspect is an implicit political message that China is sending law enforcement to an area because it is Chinese territory, that you would no more send the Chinese Navy to enforce Chinese law in Chinese territory than you would send the 1st Marine Division down the Miracle Mile of Chicago simply because there's a big crime wave going on. It is an interesting political message, again, to China's own population, to China's neighbors, and to third parties. Legal warfare is paired with public opinion warfare. Public opinion warfare is an ongoing separate strategic effort. We are, at this very moment, engaged in public opinion warfare with the People's Republic of China. In their view, we are doing it to them, and they are doing it to us. What is public opinion warfare? At its most fundamental, it is simply shaping the public opinion of the three audiences I've already noted. As with political warfare writ large, it is guided by strategic-level decisions. It includes soft diplomacy, economic and diplomatic aspects, as well as potentially the use of military shows of force and displays. So public opinion warfare, as an interesting example, is what we have seen in South Korea by the Chinese over the decision to deploy THAAD. THAAD is the Terminal High Altitude Air Defense Missile System. Uh, when South Korea chose to deploy THAAD, the Chinese were extremely unhappy about this. So the Chinese response was not to send the 15th Airborne Corps dropping into Seoul. Instead, the Chinese employed such things as weaponized tourism. Um, for those of you who have uh, not had the opportunity, I strongly recommend going down to the Smithsonian's up in Washington, D.C. They're free. They're wonderful museums. But one of the things to keep in mind is that you will see lots and lots of Chinese tourists. Nothing wrong with that. Um, just be aware that there are lots of them uh, trooping through, often following tour guides who hold up umbrellas that you know, have little pandas or dragons or something hanging off them. And you have the same gaggles of tourists at the Louvre, uh, at Tower Bridge in London, um, in, to in Seoul and in Tokyo. These folks bring a lot of money to the local economy. These are hotel rooms. These are taxi cab rides. These are restaurant tables that are filled. The Chinese very specifically discouraged their tours from going to South Korea once South Korea chose to deploy THAAD in conjunction with the United States. And the Chinese messaging about this was not very subtle. If you are a restaurant, if you are a taxicab company, if you are a tour business that is being hurt, isn't it great you live in a democracy? Because you should inform your government representatives that you are being hurt and you oppose the THAAD decision. Because that's why your tables are empty and your cabs are empty. Public opinion warfare. Economic pressure on Latte, one of the largest South Korean grocery firms, had about 120 branches in China. They have now pulled out because they were being harassed and they were being boycotted because of the THAAD decision. So this is public opinion warfare, employing a variety of different tools. Did it work? 
That is still there. But President Moon of South Korea did issue the so-called three no's. No additional THAAD would be deployed. There would be no U.S.-South Korea-Japan missile defense agreement, and that there would be very strong limits on future missile defense developments by South Korea in conjunction with the United States. So one could make an argument that public opinion warfare certainly, at a minimum, had an impact. The third of the three warfares is psychological warfare. And here, too often, we associate psychological warfare with World War I and World War II leaflet drops. Um, and even in, in Kuwait, for example, in the first Gulf War, leaflet drops show this to coalition forces and you'll be well treated. In this case, however, we are, again, talking at the strategic level. So taking the THAAD example again, what lessons do you think were learned in Bangkok or in Hanoi or in Kuala Lumpur? about the desirability of offending Beijing. Psychological warfare here very much fits with the actual Chinese, this is not from a fortune cookie, um, kill the chicken to scare the monkey. Set an example here, and other audiences will derive, hopefully, the correct lesson. So information at the strategic level is what political warfare is all about. Now, information also plays a role at the operational and tactical levels, and I won't go into that because that's a bit beyond uh, the focus of this conversation today, and I do want to make sure there's some for Q&A, but uh, just very quickly let me walk through. Information warfare at the operational level is the exploitation of information for more directly military purposes targeting military audiences and supporting military operations, whereas informationized warfare, what I've just been talking about, political warfare, et cetera, is at the strategic level. And there the idea is information dominance, the ability to gather, to analyze, to exploit information more rapidly and more accurately than your adversary. And that includes in undertaking measures that will retard and uh, complicate their ability to gather and export information. So when we look at the South China Sea, we can see the Chinese implementing a variety of the tools of informationized warfare and information warfare. Um, it is uh, emblematic of the changing and evolving view towards information. So the first thing to recognize here is that, in fact, China is very extensively and heavily involved in the South China Sea. And the PRC has asserted extensive claims over the South China Sea, and these are rooted in a number of different elements. Perhaps the most important is the issue of historic rights, that these waters have long been Chinese, uh, have been exploited by the Chinese long before unclosed for law of the sea, where most of international maritime law. And before I continue, let me underscore again, I am not a lawyer. I am certainly not a maritime lawyer, so the following is, is based on my understanding, but if I am incorrect, um, I apologize in advance. Uh, second of all is that the Chinese also cite the Nine-Dash Line. And let me note here, the Nine-Dash Line was not created by the People's Republic of China. It was created by the Republic of China, the nationalist government around 1946-47, um, and which now sits in Taipei. Um, the international, the, the Permanent Court of Arbitration uh, in its findings, rejected both of these arguments. 
regarding China's claims to much of the South China Sea, China in turn has rejected the findings of the PCA. Why is China interested in this region? And I would suggest that there's at least three broad factors. The first is resources. And this is, I think, a very key motivation. Now, when you hear resources in the South China Sea, most people think it's about oil. Um, there's been a lot of speculation about how much oil might be in the area. Uh, but the reality is that test wells actually haven't turned up much in the way of oil, at least not yet. The geology seems right, but it doesn't seem to be there. The resources that are currently most sought after aren't oil under the sea, it's the fish in the sea. Fish are free. Fish are an important source of protein. And as China has moved up this economic chain, as it has become more developed, its consumption of protein has radically grown. Um, between 2003 and 2013, China went from 46 kilograms a year to 57 kilograms a year of protein consumed. In Taiwan, they consume 74 kilograms of protein per year. So if China, writ large, follows the Taiwan development example, it is going to need a lot of protein. And fish, including wild-caught as well as uh, farm-raised fish, is seen as an important source. Wealthier China will demand more protein, and the South China Sea is nearby and a key source, although it should be noted here that many of the fishing grounds have been overfished to the point of collapse. Second of all is the issue of political legitimacy. Um, the PRC, and especially the CCP, is grounded in part upon the idea of Chinese territorial integrity and unity. The United States, in particular, is seen as fomenting the South China Sea problem in order to complicate the legitimacy issues of the CCP and to question China's territorial integrity and sovereignty. General Fang Fenghui, when he visited the United States in a joint press conference with then-Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Dempsey, said specifically that it was the United States that was creating the problems in the South China Sea. Madame Fu Ying, of the then of the National People's Congress, made the same arguments in 2015. The idea is that these countries of Southeast Asia would not have the temerity to challenge China directly if they weren't being backed by an external supporter, namely the United States. Um, the CCP's legitimacy in its the founding back in 1949 was based in part upon the idea that a China that had concessions governed by British, Russian, German, Japanese, Italian, and American elements was ended, that China would be taken as a co-equal in the global diplomatic situation, that China would be seen as having sovereignty over its territory. When you have pieces of your territory being shaved off, being challenged, whether it's in Taiwan or in the Spratleys, or in the Paracels, then your sovereignty is at risk, and the CCP's claim to legitimacy of defending China's interests and representing the Chinese people is called into question, again, in front of all three audiences. And finally, you have the issue of strategic depth. As I noted earlier, China's economic center of gravity is now on the coast. The problem with being on the coast is you have no additional 
space to trade for defense. It's very hard to, I mean, it's not like anybody just anchors ships at sea to serve as surface-to-air missile batteries or early warning detections. You'd almost have to build islands, sort of like what China has done in the South China Sea, to make that possible. When you consider how many hundreds of billions of dollars China has already invested in infrastructure, in the industrial plant, etc., in places like Shanghai and Ningbo and Shenzhen, you can see why strategic depth out to at least the first island chain would be of importance. But in particular, for the South China Sea, is the, issue, is the island of Hainan. Now, nobody questions whether Hainan is part of China. It is. What is interesting about Hainan, however, is what is on that island. It has China's fourth spaceport and its most modern, the one that can handle the largest Chinese rockets. It has a Chinese ballistic missile submarine facility. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with ballistic missile submarines, those are SSBNs. They are the ones that carry your seaborne nuclear deterrent. It has at least one submarine pen for China's nuclear non-ballistic missile submarines. It has a carrier berth. It has multiple military air bases. For those of you who are uh, you know, students of or uh, veterans of the Cold War, I have often said that Hainan is Chinese for the Kola Peninsula. Uh, the Kola Peninsula up in the northwest of Russia was a similarly heavily militarized piece of the Soviet Union, where there were missile bases, air bases, and uh, naval bases. So being an island, you want to keep the Americans in particular, potential adversaries writ large, as far away as possible. And one of the American um, aces, trump cards, is its submarine force. It's quiet, it's stealthy, carries long-range Tomahawk missiles. Hainan is going to be very vulnerable, especially if you allow enemy submarines to operate in close proximity. The farther away you can keep them, the better. And so the South China Sea has become, in a sense, the buffer for Hainan. These islands then serve multiple functions. We've already heard news reports about the deployment of radars, of jammers, and of uh, air defenses to those islands. Does that mean that they will defeat a potential attack? No. But it does mean that it provides additional warning. It provides a political signal. If you are willing to strike those targets, then you are providing evidence that you may well strike mainland China. That's something that the Chinese want to know. How seriously are you taking China? How far are you willing to go? And then finally, if nothing else, it serves as an interesting political message to the rest of the world. If the United States were to strike these islands, which the Chinese keep insisting are civilian and are self-defense only, what does that play in public opinion warfare? What does that play in psychological warfare? Potentially, what might that play in legal warfare? So let me then conclude with the PRC views itself in competition, not in war, but in competition, arguably in conflict with the rest of the world. It is not a zero-sum conflict. China is our largest trading partner. China is the largest trading partner for much of the world. It clearly is interested in mutually beneficial economic ties. But at the same time, it is keeping an eye upon the role of information at the strategic and operational and tactical level in order to be able 
to frame the conflict, and should it turn kinetic, be in a better position to exploit it. Legal warfare is a central element to that shaping function in the context of regional disputes such as the South China Sea and global disputes um, where China feels it has a stake. Thank you very much. What's wrong with it? Not necessarily anything. Um, in, presumably, in any legal battle, there are two sides. So, but what I would suggest is that the starting principle is different. The rule of law versus rule by law, point one. Point two is that there is a body of fairly accepted interpretation of the law. Uh, my understanding is that stare decisis is an absolute cornerstone of Western concepts of jurisprudence. Where China takes legal warfare into the political warfare realm is its efforts to reshape fundamental interpretations of the law to support political ends, whether or not they are necessarily supported by past decisions and past jurisprudence. So when we look at, for example, and here again, let me emphasize, I'm not a lawyer, but this is my impression from reading Chinese arguments about the law of the sea. Exclusive economic zones under unclose and under pre-unclose, um, EEZs didn't exist pre-unclose, I understand that. But the idea that was being applied here is that exclusive economic zones are international waterways by which the baseline country has, in a sense, first right of refusal over the resources. That they are, most importantly still, international waters. I would suggest that China's view seems to be that no, EEZs are national waters in which other nations may transit mostly freely. And so this is one of the arguments that we see about the issue of freedom of navigation and the issue of what is and is not allowed. So the Chinese have regularly demanded, they have emphasized, they have never interfered with commercial shipping through their EEZ, which is true. But at the same time, they insist that other nations need to register their military aircraft and ships that are transiting through that sea space on the grounds that the UNCLOSE and EEZs do not allow spying and the like. Whereas Western interpretations, to the best of my understanding, is no, that these are international waterways that a ship, any ship, any military ship can stop, conduct helicopter launches, can fire off uh, chaff pods, can do all sorts of things in international, in those waters because they are international. China's effort here, I would suggest, is not simply a matter of a different interpretation. 
but that it reflects a broader strategic goal of extending Chinese sovereignty into what had previously been international common spaces. And that what we are seeing at sea is also reflected in the cyber domain and potentially in the future in the space domain.
Thank you. That's a very interesting perspective. I would note the following. Um, with regards to South Korea and weaponized tourism, um, what individual Chinese citizens, where they choose to go, is obviously going to be an individual decision. China does not direct uh, tourists to one location or another. But how the Chinese government dealt with tour groups and tour group organizers within the PRC does seem to have been a function of the government. And the government, we uh, have uh, interesting directives and other things that clearly suggested uh, politely that tour groups should be tour group operators should go to other locations than South Korea. That did not prevent Chinese citizens from visiting South Korea. It merely made sure that large groups of them at any particular time were less likely to go. Uh, with regards to EEZ, um, U.S.-China agreements certainly do not indicate a um, – the um, military maritime consultative agreements cues uh, the various other uh, measures that have been taken uh, do not cover U.S. military operations in the South China Sea. And while China may not feel FONOPs are a problem, um, the reaction, for example, to the most recent FONOP a few days ago – uh, by U.S. Navy ships near, I think it was Mischief Reef, but it might have been Gavin Shoals, uh, suggests that certainly someone in the Chinese military and government does have problems with our operate with our FONOP type operations in the area. Um, as for the PCA, um, I have to admit that I'm not familiar enough with it to know whether it was a specific uh, part of the court, whether it was a subset. Uh, whether there was an on-bank uh, set of decisions in that regard. I will note, however, that the Chinese reaction certainly has been, uh, I think it was uh, Ambassador to the United States, Fei Tiankai, who said that these people were frankly unqualified to make any judgment and assessment. Um, an interesting assessment. I'm not sure I would agree with that. But again, I am not a lawyer and I don't uh, uh, necessarily um, uh, have the qualification judge who is and is not qualified. Um, perhaps uh, Ambassador Tsui is more privy to that sort of thing than I am. Um, but I would note, however, that uh, whether or not it was an on bank or whether it was an ad hoc group or what have you, that the PCA ruling, the ruling that was handed down, is considered part of international law. That is the assessment of, to the best of my understanding of the Department of State and the Department of Justice, that it is now part of international law and the body thereof governing at least um, the, the South China Sea. Any other questions? Yes, sir.
Um, that's a very good question. I'm afraid I don't have an answer. Um, I don't know why the Chinese government doesn't pursue an ICJ ruling. It may be that it is uncertain about how uh, the court would uh, find. Um, there is an American joke that uh, you should never ask a question you don't already know the answer to. Uh, so I'm sure that is not the case here. Uh, but um, I do think that uh, one, one issue will almost certainly be how sure are you that the court will find in your favor. Um, I suspect that the Philippines probably would not have brought the case, its case to arbitration if it was pretty sure it would lose um, and probably felt that there was a reasonable chance that it could win. Um, another aspect to this is, I think, there is an issue of nationalism here, and, and um, your, your uh, fellow classmate raised a very good point, which is that China does confront a domestic nationalism issue. Let's imagine that China brought a suit and lost. Now, I'm not saying it should or it would. What would be the domestic Chinese reaction to such a loss? It could be very, very hard to control, especially because it would be losing to Japan, which has a number of historical antagonisms uh, with China and vice versa. Um, you folks should make a note of that. That's probably the most diplomatic comment I've ever made. Um, so that's a second aspect. A third aspect here is an interesting question of who could or should be a party. That is to say, is there a role for the government in Taipei? After all, the Senkakus are far closer physically to Taiwan than they are to mainland China. They're also much closer to both of those than to Japan. So could there be, again, never ask a question you don't know the answer to, would the court decide to make some kind of comment with regards to Taiwan? And how would that complicate everything and everyone? Um, so I would suggest that there are a number of factors at work that might explain why they don't. Um, and then one final aspect is, what is the jurisdiction of the ICJ in what China believes is its territory? Because one of the things that, and as an American, this bothers me most. We often portray Chinese claims, whether to the Spratleys or to the Paracels or to the Senkakus, as a land grab, as an attempt to seize someone else's territory. And if you're Filipino or Vietnamese or Japanese, that's understandable. But at the same time, I think it's important to recognize that from China's perspective, this is defense of their territory. And you would no more invite a court to come into your home and assess the ownership of the apples or steak in your refrigerator then I think China feels it necessary or rightful or legitimate for a court to come in and make a decision on what it feels is its territory. So I think that when you open up things to arbitration, you're implicitly saying someone from the outside has a right, because you're inviting them in, to make a decision, an adjudication, on what, as a starting point, is mine to begin with. So I think that that at a very base level, is a factor that militates against doing something like this. Can I ask a question? Uh, I suggest you pose that as a rhetorical question. I'll give you an inquisitive little bit of stuff. Yes, sir. Is there a um, sort of unitary place uh, that's being 
Uh, well, I'm afraid that, that you and I are looking at the same sources then. Um, but broadly speaking, um, China-Russia relations um, basically are the living embodiment of the concept of complex. It's complicated, to borrow a line from Facebook. Um, so you have the Sino-Soviet split of 1960. And for almost uh, 15, 20 years, uh, no, about 15 years, you really had the two at loggerheads. And during this period, by the way, China and the Soviet Union fought a limited conventional war. And that should be very sobering because both countries had nuclear weapons. So for those who are you know, trained in the idea that nuclear armed states don't fight each other, that's only true for the U.S. and the Soviet Union. U.S., Britain, and France, and the Soviet Union. China in 1969 struck Soviet uh, outposts on Domansky Island, Zembao Island. This eventually led to battalion regimental clashes, both in the east along the Amur and Asuri, but also in Kazakhstan. Um, this was exacerbated by broader territorial issues. Russia, Imperial Russia, had seized large swaths of territory that had been Imperial Chinese during the late 19th century. Um, in the late 1980s and early 1990s, uh, Deng Xiaoping and uh, Mikhail Gorbachev initialed a number of agreements that were subsequently reiterated with the collapse of the Soviet Union by the constituent uh, former Soviet republics. So basically, the land borders between China and Russia, and then China, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, etc., have been put to rest. Now, whether that's permanent or not is an interesting question, but at least since, let's say, 1992, basically the two sides have accepted the current borders. Um, and what is striking, and a professor up at MIT, Taylor Fravel, has written a book on this, uh, is that the Chinese, at least with the Central Asian republics, were even willing to make certain territorial concessions as they adjusted borders and, and moved things around a little bit. Um, there have been, to the best of my knowledge, no outright border clashes between the two uh, since essentially 1969, 1970. Uh, so that's the territorial issue. Uh, Trade-wise, China is a major trading partner for Russia. The nature of that trade has shifted. Uh, China today exports not only um, some low-end goods, textiles, etc., but even machine tools and things to Russia. Uh, this is very disturbing to Russian machine tool manufacturers, as you can imagine, and the like. China has long been a source of consumer goods. Uh, Russia is largely a natural resource provider to China. Uh, this has grown in particular in the wake of all the sanctions that the West has imposed on Russia for uh, Ukraine, Crimea, etc. So this has created some very interesting complications. Russia is a little bit like the um, uh, balloon animals, right? Uh, when you squeeze air at one end, it goes to a different end. If you squeeze Russia with regards to Crimea and sanctions, the resources don't just sit there. Some of it eventually flows eastward into China. Um, the Chinese, frankly, have played harder ball with the Russians on some of these resource negotiations, the construction of pipelines, etc., that were initialed as part of an, a larger uh, mutual energy agreement. Uh, the pipelines are supposed to be built by the Russians, paid for out of the Russian half of the deal. Um, so it's a bit less lucrative than it might have seemed. Um, China has been pushing what's been known as the Belt and Road Initiative. If you take a look, most of the Belt and Road Initiative goes into Central Asia and heads south. 
it doesn't necessarily hook into Russia. This, too, has been an interesting source of some concern, we think, in Moscow. Why is China not pushing that? Finally, there is a Shanghai Cooperation Organization. This was created uh, in the, I believe, late 1990s. Um, and it brought together uh, China and Russia, plus uh, many of the Central Asian uh, countries. Um, this is really, arguably, a very polite forum for strategic competition between Moscow and Beijing for influence over the Central Asian countries, where you see the Chinese wielding the economic card, Belt and Road Initiative, investments, infrastructure investments. Uh, there is the uh, report that the Chinese bought out the debt of the Kazakhstan state oil company and then actually turned most of that over to the Kazakhs to basically purchase um, uh, goodwill uh, in Kazakhstan. The Russians bring both a long history of um, relationships and the attendant dossiers and files on pretty much everyone in Central Asia, certainly among the leadership, uh, you, your family, your relations, your cousins, your dog, your cat, your goldfish. Um, the Russians basically have retained most of those human intelligence files and access. So it's a very interesting asymmetric competition. Um, Russia has always said that it's an Asian power as well as a European power. And what we are seeing with North Korea, uh, including uh, Mr. Putin, uh, warning the U.S. to cease military exercises there, the decision to open a second fiber optic cable line into North Korea for a country that has 30, we think, websites. That's a lot of bandwidth. Evidently, everyone's running Game of Thrones at really high definition uh, in every home, um, so simultaneously. Uh, and um, has also opened up a second physical bridge has forgiven a chunk of North Korean debt. So Russia also seems to feel that it may be able to play a role in North Korea. So does that address your question? Okay. Right. So did you have a question? I'm sorry, which organization?
Um, on the issue of China trade, um, I think that part of the issue here is uh, what we are seeing in the broader debate that President Trump has brought to light that we are seeing through Europe and elsewhere, which is how does globalization ultimately work out? Um, and that's a big debate that is more than just China. Now, where I will in addition to not being a lawyer, I'm also not an economist. Um, but I did have the dubious benefit of sharing an office wall with my good friend Derek Scissors, uh, who is an economist and has a very piercing voice. And so through sheer osmosis, I think I picked up a fair bit of economics, although probably warped by the brick wall. So what I will say is, again, my opinion as an untrained economist, and uh, you should probably consult with actual economists. Um, but what I would say is the following, that we have trade issues inevitably that arise between states that have lower costs of production, often labor, and states that are hollowing out, whether it's the United States, Japan, Western Europe, et cetera. So that's one source of concern. And China is going to be an interesting example of this because its labor force is shrinking due to demographics, uh, and it is aging. And we already see certain low-end manufacturing, textiles and things, moving to places like India and Vietnam, Indonesia and Mexico, precisely because China's competitive advantage there has been shrinking. A separate issue is that of subsidies and other non-tariff, uh, uh, sorry, non-structural impediments as opposed to non-tariff impediments, uh, non-subsidy impediments. And there we have some real issues particularly because China's economy is not a market economy. It's something that uh, the EU recently reaffirmed yet again. And so in that context, you have a system where you have additional interference to that that would simply be present between one that is cheap labor and one that has expensive labor. How we work that one out is much less clear. And the WTO mechanism, as we all know, is one that grinds very, very, very slowly um, to the point where many industries that were the subject of WTO uh, rulings have either evaporated or fundamentally changed in the time it's taken for the WTO to hold hearings and make change and issue a finding. Um, I have to admit I don't really know much about the Chinese count, uh, views on the terrorist organization or alleged terrorist organization um, that you mentioned. I, I'm afraid I'm just I'm not familiar with that. All I can say there is that various countries designate various groups as terrorist organizations, sometimes even through the UN, that not everyone agrees to. 
Um, there are Iranian organizations that the U.S. has chosen to retain contact with that Iran and others clearly have designated as terrorists. I think perhaps even the U.N. has. Uh, so, hmm? so all I'm saying is just that different countries choose to accept other countries or other organizations' definitions of terrorist organizations. I'm not familiar with the one you're talking about, so I really can't speak to that. Um, with regards to uh, PCA rulings elsewhere, again, Bangladesh and India chose to abide by that. I believe that Singapore and Malaysia have had disagreements. They, too, have chosen to submit to PCA. China made very clear it did not accept any legitimacy to the argument that there was PCA jurisdiction over the South China Sea. Um, what does that say? Um, it says whatever, well, first off, it says whatever you want it to say. China's view is it is fundamentally illegitimate. The Philippines' view is that it is legitimate. Um, I would note that both China and the Philippines are signatories to UNCLOSE. Um, but China's argument there is that the Philippines had not exhausted all other routes and therefore bringing it to PCA was inappropriate. Um, the interesting question here is, are there circumstances where Beijing would feel, and this goes to the Senkaku's question, that the PCA has a legitimate role to play in a dispute? And what would that look like? I mean, that's just a simple question. So you can pick a different issue. But is there any issue along um, the lines of border disputes that China feels is appropriate for arbitration? So thus far, we don't seem to have seen any. Yes, So it's important to pay attention. Deng Xiaoping made the excellent observation once, seek truth from fact. Um, how, on the one hand, we have a lot of discussion, not only from the Chinese press but global press, about the Belt and Road Initiative. And if it is to be believed, China is going to, by the time it's entirely done, pretty much have bought up most of the planet. Um, however, when we look at actual Chinese investment figures, and actual investments. What we see is a lot of contracts, but a lot less spending on BRI than we do in straightforward foreign direct investment, first and foremost in Western Europe, second throughout Asia, particularly Southeast Asia, but even in, in Northeast Asia, and third, North America, mainly the United States. Um, Chinese FDI set new records for Europe, in 2017, 
It fell in North America in 2017, but only relative to 2016 when it was a record there. So when you look at, for example, figures about Afghanistan, you see huge, 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 it's huge, uh, numbers associated with Afghanistan in terms of contracts, meaning what could be done. But then when you look at what's actually being spent on the ground, actual surveys, actual exploitation, it's a very, very, it's in the tens of billions is my understanding. So um, I don't actually work for Derek Scissors, um, but he does put out something called the China Investment Tracker um, at the AEI American Enterprise Institute website. If you are interested in that, he actually goes through, reconciles figures and things, and gives you a pretty good out report, uh, report out um, every month, I think, of Chinese foreign direct investment, where it's going. And the answer is, it's not actually going to BRI. So there are very high-profile projects, there are individual high-profile uh, things, but the overall scale is still heavily weighted towards established markets. And the reason for that goes actually back to what I said earlier. Europe, Northeast Asia, North America are rule-of-law places. If the Chinese investment runs into trouble, if the partner refuses to pay up, etc., there is a legal and court system there that can be fairly reliably turned to to adjudicate and arbitrate. Places in like Afghanistan, places like Central Asia, many African play, uh, countries are m not yet there. And when you are talking about the amounts of money that the Chinese are talking about, that actually does make a difference. Domestically speaking, it's even less clear what impact that's having. Uh, when the Chinese invest abroad, particularly in physical things like mines and factories, they bring their own workforce. Uh, the Chinese have been very upfront in saying, I'm investing because I want to buy your bauxite. I'm investing here because I want to buy your lithium. Um, I'm not investing here so that I will train your workforce to compete with me. Uh, I have lots of people in China who need jobs, and I'm going to bring them to Ghana, to Dubai, to Indonesia to, to work in the factories that we are helping to invest in. Um, this creates some very interesting political and other pressures. That again goes to why China also feels a need to do political warfare, to trumpet the benefits of Chinese investment. Is the U.S. capable of responding? Each. That's a really difficult question to ask answer, in part because we and the Chinese are competing so differently. To begin with, because of the continued heavy role of the Chinese Communist Party in every part of Chinese society, there is no civil society as we understand it in China. Uh, there's a half joke in China that where there are three Chinese people, one of them should be a member of the party. Um, Walmart allows unionized labor in China. This is not a Western union. This is not a you know, Teamster, United Auto Workers kind of model. This is a Chinese labor union so that there is a party committee governing that union that can keep tabs on the union membership. Very important point. So I bring this up because China is therefore capable of implementing whole of society operations. It can direct, it can certainly influence tour groups, it can influence 
where they go. It can influence where investments are made. It still has a heavy state-owned enterprise element and state-run banking system, which means that companies do not necessarily have to pay attention to the bottom line. That influences your investment decisions. The United States, at best, on a good day, which is probably, you know, uh, Wednesdays in, in months that don't end with Y. Um, fourth Wednesdays in months that don't end in Y. Um, is capable of whole of government. Kind of rare. We do not have whole of society. We are a fractious, debating, uh, mutually backbiting, well-armed uh, society um, that as a result doesn't tend to move as a whole. So if the U.S. is lucky, it can get most of the elements of foreign policy together to do something. Um, the good news is we have a lot of other voices, and they have an impact. Whether it is Walt Disney or Coca-Cola or McDonald's or Levi's, that has an impact. And we sometimes forget that they are part of how the world looks at us. And they're not sending a single coherent message not how we operate. But it is part of the political warfare, whether we intend it to be or not. It is part of the political warfare environment. Um, because at the end of the day, when we look at the 17 countries, is it, that's represented in here? Uh, nine, nine countries. Nine, nine countries. Um, Disney is present in all of them. McDonald's is present in all of them. Um, Britney Spears is present in all of them. Now, we may not be thrilled by that, but the reality is that that exerts an impact. Which Chinese pop stars are present? Which Chinese fashion examples? Which movie? There are more movie stars today, actually, uh, that are recognizable. But that is part of that shaping and context. Um, and I think that that's something that, fortunately, is not under the control of the U.S. government. Because if you think about it, a camel is a horse designed by a committee. Um, one can only imagine what political warfare organized by the United States government by the time it finally made it out the door would actually look like. So, in the back. Would you please speak to Um, intellectual property theft. Uh, there's a lot of it. Um, so the Chinese have a concept of comprehensive national power. Um, this is actually an idea borrowed from the Japanese. They came up with it in the 1980s. Comprehensive national power is how nations rack and stack with each other. Um, it is military capability. It is economic power. It is diplomatic recognition. It is political stability and unity. It is science and technology levels. It is cultural security. The ability to access information is essential to all of that. So I would say, first off, that theft of intellectual property is, part, is subsumed under this larger effort at obtaining information writ large. 
why is it quote unquote okay? First off, it's not okay for me to come into your house and rifle through your spouse's jewelry. But if you leave the door open, the windows unlocked, and a note to the milkman that you're gone for the next two weeks, so please hold delivery, you put it on a yellow post note on the doorknob, you shouldn't be all that surprised if someone comes in and rifles through your spouse's jewelry and takes the brand new um, flat screen out the door. So part of the answer to why have they done it is because people were stupid. Uh, Nortel is a, was a Canadian telecom company. Their chief information officer regularly went to the CEO and COO and said, we're seeing a huge amount of unauthorized activity in our networks. And those guys were like, don't bug me, kid. <laughs> Nortel no longer exists. Piece of it got sold off, but most of it went bankrupt. Uh, why? Well, it seems like a Chinese company went, you know, with its products pretty soon after the company went bankrupt. So that's part of it. Um, am I blaming the victim? Yeah, to some extent. But when the victim's kind of stupid, you can't ignore that, all right? Part of... Not everyone's left the door wide open. Although OPM apparently did. Um, you would think that you know somebody who has guardianship over all these secret agents' you know, personal bios, you would think might have paid a little more attention. Going back to the, does the U.S. government have a plan? It may have a plan. I'd hate to imagine what it looks like. Um, so another piece of this is, from the Chinese perspective, like that of other developing countries like the United States in the 1800s, why not? There's a story, I'm pretty sure it's true, um, of a gentleman who had a photographic memory who visited Scottish mills in the early 1800s and looked at the blueprints and committed it all to memory and brought it back to America and built a lot of that stuff. Outraged the Europeans, and we said basically, prove it. Um, part of it is, though, that comprehensive national power. China sees itself in competition. It sees itself in a period which is coming to an end, the period of strategic opportunity. It needs to catch up. Now, part of it is also an interesting argument that we see from the Chinese, which is, we wanted to buy this from you. You wouldn't sell it to us. Now, the implication there is that we have no right to withhold certain technologies and the like. Um, beginning with Deng Xiaoping, we had always had the very interesting Chinese argument. Why don't you sell us more high technology? It would solve your trade deficit issue. Actual numbers suggest that is absolutely false. But the point is, the Chinese want to buy and are willing to buy. And I suspect that we're actually seeing an interesting back and forth here where you had a lot of IP theft. We saw some reduction of IP theft and a lot of Chinese efforts to buy foreign companies, uh, several in Germany, for example. The Europeans have now concluded that they need to limit sales of high-tech companies to foreign, i.e. Chinese, owners, and that we may see a shift back towards more IP theft if the Chinese can't do that. So let me conclude this long, boring discourse by suggesting the following. The Chinese know what they want, and they will move rook, pawn, bishop, and knight to try and obtain it. If that means buying it legitimately, that's fine. That means forming a joint venture with you and accessing your intellectual property mostly legally that way, that's another. 
If it means theft, that's a third. If it means operating through other parties, but the idea is they have a goal in mind that they are trying to fulfill. Now, that goal, again, would seem to run counter to some of our strategic interests and certainly uh, runs counter to even their commitments. So 2015, you had the Xi-Obama um, agreement to limit cyber economic espionage. Um, that seems to have worked for about a year. At this point, there's general agreement that the amount of cyber economic espionage has returned to what it was before. But, and this is very important, in 2015, a lot of the theft was traced by back to IP addresses that suggested the government. Now they are being traced back to entities that do not appear directly linked to the government. And the answer seems to be, we have hackers too. So do you believe that behind the Great Firewall of China there's groups of criminal hackers who are just hacking into DuPont and Monsanto and all these other places without reference to the Chinese government? That's certainly some possibility, but I would suspect that there's a limited audience of that. Yes, ma'am. Uh, building roads and infrastructure. Um, why? Um, so the Chinese basically are building roads and infrastructure often to uh, link Chinese-built ports to Chinese-contracted uh, mines and Chinese-contracted factories. Um, so that's one reason. Another reason is, as you will see on plaques and elsewhere, this is a gift from the Chinese people to the people of Tanzania, Kenya, etc. So there's a political element there. Um, which other countries do, right? We have built airports and highways. Uh, we did a lot of this during the Cold War. We and the Soviets built a lot of infrastructure around the world in bidding for local political support. Um, in the Chinese case, those are real investments. They paid for that lithium mine. They paid for the copper. And to be fair to the Chinese, it's important to note, when they do contracts with Bolivia for lithium and copper and Australia for iron, they're paying market rates. In some cases, they've been known to pay above market rates. Because what the Chinese value is not just the material, but long-term contract. They want assurance of supply. So what are they doing? A lot of that is intended to basically provide the materials that they will haul home to China to then fuel the Chinese economy. And by the way, that means making the bobblehead dolls of the Nats and uh, San Diego Padres and everybody else, and T-shirts, and Lenovo computers, and all the rest. Now, where we are seeing a shift, and Sri Lanka is a very disturbing example of this, has been certain contract deals. And let me note, the Sri Lankans walked in and signed deals with China and then wanted to pull back and renegotiate those deals. Arguably, from a legal perspective, the problem was with the Sri Lankans, not with the Chinese. And the Chinese said, we are refused, but we will do a debt for equity swap. And so my understanding is the port of Hambantota and Colombo Airport basically went from, well, okay, uh, the Chinese built it, it's owned by the Sri Lankans, to the Sri Lankans signing over a 99-year lease on those facilities to the Chinese. 
the lesson here is you should read the fine print and you should probably have a lawyer or five on your side when you're negotiating the deal. That, by the way, is a, not a career piece of advice either. Um, so, but the reality is that many of these countries either did not pay attention, were inexperienced, or signed deals for their own political reasons. Like, hey, we're going to have a new port, and that's great, and there will be some jobs, and I will ride that to electoral victory in the fall, and long-term consequences be darned. Um, but the result was that a good chunk of Sri Lankan infrastructure, which was built and paid for by the Chinese, is now owned and operated by the Chinese for the foreseeable future. And there is an important lesson, whether it will be learned or not. The British are said to have the great point. They never say lessons learned. They say lessons observed. So the lesson that's been observed and hopefully learned is that you should be very careful in setting the terms of a deal with the PRC, as you should be with the IMF and elsewhere. Um, so I think that is probably part of what is going on in Africa. There's no evidence that the Chinese military base in Djibouti, their first military base overseas, was anything other than an openly contracted deal. However, it is also interesting to note that Djibouti has chosen to break its contract with Dubai Port World for the operation of Dubai's commercial port and apparently has decided to go with a Chinese operator and that its decision to break with Dubai Port World breaks the contract. It's not, it's not just that it was the contract was coming to an end and they wanted to renegotiate. Um, so that is an interesting <coughs> observation with regards to China's first military base. Yes, sir. Yes, to return to the South China Sea, um, what do you think the uh, U.S. strategy is to address the operations of China? And if different, what should it be? Ah. Uh, what is it? Um, protests, fawn ops, some more fawn ops, um, getting other countries hopefully to do fawn ops. Um, and We'll see whether that has much uh, impact. There is a Chinese phrase, uh, like a wind past the ear, meaning totally irrelevant. Um, so the islands are built. They're now being militarized, and that's in contravention of the 2015 Xi-Obama agreement as well. Um, the Chinese argument there. When the Chinese finally really have as many lawyers proportionately as the United States, we should all be very, very afraid because they are very good now at making interesting legal arguments. The Chinese and uh, President Xi Jinping, uh, if you go back and take a look, there's a White House statement uh, at the time it was, it was you know, a press conference, said that China would not militarize the South China Sea, particularly with reference to the Nansa Islands, the Spratlys. Um, so why are they then deploying satellite jammers, surface air missiles, et cetera? And the Chinese response to that is, those are self-defense. When we said no militarization, we mean no offensive capabilities. Now, of course, the devil is in the further details of what is an offensive weapon. So the Chinese argument here is that they have not violated their pledge. They're not militarizing the islands. They're merely setting them up for defense. And that non-militarization does, does not contravene the right to self-defense. Um, I'll leave that to you folks, the lawyers, to figure out whether or not that's uh, acceptable or not. But with regards to what could be done. The interesting issue here is that Chinese land reclamation in the South China Sea is not being done by the Chinese military. It is done by Chinese state-owned 
enterprises. And there has been very limited effort to try and go after those state-owned enterprises who have global interests and global markets and try and at least hurt their bottom line. And so, in a nutshell, if I were going to do things, no, I would not sail a U.S. destroyer into the middle of those islands that are shooting at things. I keep on doing FONOPs because we, that's what we do as a government, going back to the government. But I think that between the U.S., Europe, Japan, and other nations committed to the rules-based order, we can certainly put pressure on state-owned enterprises to cease and desist. Will it work? Probably not. But it will at least hurt them, and it will send a signal. Sanctions on those companies yeah. and entities associated with those companies. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Mr. I think it's a good start. I think that we need, again, to have something of a debate among ourselves, which is, one, do we want to trade with China? Okay. And if we want to trade with China, what do we want to trade with China on? And that means having an actual debate, yeah, with interest groups and all that sort of thing uh, playing into it. Because on the one hand, I mean, the Chinese have tried to invest in the United States for a variety of reasons some commercial, some national security, some access to high technology. And we're, half the time we seem to be saying, well, it's a national security problem, okay. But there are various times when it's like, well, we don't want you competing with us. Ah. We don't want you competing with us. And that's a national security problem. And it's like, hmm, okay. So national security is really whatever you want it to be, sort of like militarization is whatever they want it to be. So I want to make very clear here, you know, are the Chinese uniquely bad about <clears throat> redefining terms? Oh, no. We have lots of people who are more than happy to do that as well. So the issue here is then, is America open for business? In what areas? For what hours? Um, and where does China fit into that? And I don't think it is reasonable for the Chinese to try and acquire, especially through covert means, high technology that clearly is national security oriented, but we also agree that espionage is okay um, in the sense that it happens. Um, on the CFIUS foreign review and all those sorts of aspects, I think that's very important. Um, I don't think we have the tech, well, if Paul Rosenzweig here, so he will talk probably about the technology <laughs> aspect. <I'll be> <laughs> <laughs> uh, but getting our brains around cyber, getting our brains around which pieces of microchips? I mean, for example, we import a huge number of microchips from the rest of the world. And we have no idea what's on those chips. There's no quality control. For all we know, every one of those chips is hardwired to bypass your anti-malware and antivirus software so that it will feed back to the source manufacturer. We don't know, right? So we're closing a couple of doors here and there, and there are other doors that we haven't even thought of. And then the last piece, because the next speaker is here, is to just note, we at least have a CFIUS, all right? Europeans and others don't even have that. 
So if we're going to talk about barn doors and all that sort of thing, the entire zoo is open in Europe. And, you know, the animals are just walking in and out. Um, and some have already gone over the hill and beyond the dale. And that is one of the other problems, because when it comes to these sorts of things, the U.S. isn't the only source of that technology. And if they don't get their acts together and we don't coordinate, then you wind up with a beggar thy neighbor approach, which benefits no one. So my final recommendation, if I were to make one, is to think about reestablishing something like the old COCOM, Coordinating Committee, on exports so that we all agree certain things are off limits, but also certain things are on limits. That it's okay for anyone to work with the Chinese and other countries on these technology areas. And then it's just a matter of, you know, best price and best quality. Okay, thank you very much for your talk.